You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, our guest is my dear friend, Richard Manning. Rick Manning is the president of Americans for Limited Government. A longtime public affairs professional, Rick served as the public affairs chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Labor during the George W. Bush administration, where he was twice recognized by the Secretary for Exceptional Achievement. Born and raised in Southern California, but don't hold that against him, Rick graduated from the University of Southern California, working his way through school, running political campaigns. He became a state lobbyist for the National Rifle Association for nine years, and he was responsible for southeastern United States, Maryland, and New Jersey. At the NRA, Rick worked closely with local groups to pass the groundbreaking concealed carry law in Florida, which has subsequently served as a national model. A veteran of dozens of corporate communications and grassroots campaigns, Manning has appeared as a leading voice in the conservative community with columns in The Hill, Investors Business Daily, FoxNews.com, and other major publications across the nation. Rick lives in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland with his wife, and he's active in his local church. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gail. This is a big, exciting week, and it's not because of the Oscars. We have the North Korea summit news, and this is something really revolutionary that no other administration has been able to accomplish. Can you tell us where we are right now in regard to the summit and what we might expect to see? Well, the president's in in Hanoi, of all places, meeting with uh, North Korean uh, Premier Kim Jong-un, and it is a, and what we're looking at is this is the second meeting. Um, the first meeting resulted in uh, a cessation of uh, rockets be testing being done, the elimination of at least one nuclear site in North Korea, um, and quite honestly, the uh, ending of the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea, at least the guns pointed at each other part of it. You still don't just walk across, but it's a much more collegial um, environment. And so it's a really a, a lessening of tensions on the on the DMZ between North and South Korea. Now, this has been a somewhat intractable problem since the end of the Korean War in the, in the early 50s. And many administrations have, have sort of given it the kick the can down the road on it as um, and it's been President Trump who has made a made a real effort to try to do something, and largely because the North Koreans uh, be have become increasingly aggressive in terms of pursuing nuclear weapons, and a nuclearized North Korea is a threat to the entire, not only the Asian Pacific region, but at least to the west coast of the United States and to Hawaii. So the president saw a real existential threat. He's taken the bull by the horns. And uh, in the first meeting, we got we got some progress made. Second meeting, um, the expectations are that uh, Kim Jong-un will be given an, an option on this, an option of two different visions of where North Korea will go. Will North Korea be continue to be a place of darkness, a place of which will be isolated, and quite honestly, a place where uh, there's no real rule for Kim Jong-un because his his expulsion will be demanded by his own generals 
who fear United States retaliation if the if the negotiations negotiations don't go forward properly. Um, or, how, or Rick, or, how is this how is this related to President Trump's idea that America should not be the world's policeman and we have problems at home like illegal illegal aliens who are um, committing crimes and uh, we don't seem to be able to staunch that. And he's had this ongoing battle about funding for the border wall and border security with the Congress. How do you see that this North Korean summit is consistent with his view that uh, it previously, I, I mean, he, I think, He's made this, he's articulated this more than probably any other president in recent memory, that America needs to focus on America first. How do you see that that is consistent with that philosophy? When a crazy person is aiming nuclear weapons at you, you have to pay attention to it. That becomes a primary function of of the federal government to protect the homeland. And so I see it very much akin to the uh, illegal alien problem. It's just a different level. Um, North Korea, while uh, being far away, you might ask a question, you know, well, why do we have 35,000 troops sitting on the border protecting South Korea from them? Well, the answer um, for previous generations was, well, that's kind of the way it's always been, and it appears to be the way it's going to be forever. Well, what President Trump said was, there's a we have a real problem. North Korea is developing nuclear weapons. They're threatening the entire region. They're threatening the the shipping lanes that go throughout throughout the Asian Pacific region. And they're also threatening Hawaii shooting uh, with at least medium-range ballistic missiles and trying to develop long-range ballistic missiles. Uh, North Korea is a, at that point, North Korea, when they project the capacity to shoot a nuclear weapon at the United States, becomes an existential threat to our country. And it isn't just blowing up a you know a city as we kind of think of in 1940s terms. <laughs> right. What we're thinking about is an EMP and three electro. What is an EMP? Electromagnetic pulse device, um, which could be which could be exploded in the atmosphere and effectually, effectively shut down the power grid and electric and electrical uh, all electrical operations um, throughout the country or at least throughout regions of the country, depending on where it was exploded, that kind of attack would have the effect of threatening hundreds of millions of people's lives, um, simply because you wouldn't have food supplies anymore, you wouldn't have refrigeration, you wouldn't have automobiles, you wouldn't have any of the things we take for granted that all run on electricity. And as a result, the North Koreans become an extraordinarily important threat, and we cannot allow them to gain that power. Uh, liberal critics of President Trump have said that he has imperiled our allies and our alliances, not only with European countries, but even these countries in Asia who are threatened by North Korea's aggression. Uh, he is trying to negotiate with China on trade deals. He's trying to um, definitely renegotiate things with our European allies in relation to NATO. Do you think that this is the proper time for President Trump to continue these negotiations with North with the North Korean leadership, or is he in a position of weakness in going into these negotiations? Um, Japan, Japanese President Abe just nominated him for the for the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Um, I, On I, that, there I, there I, are rumors that yeah. he got them to do that, that the White House got uh, the Japanese minister to do yeah. that. Do you put any stock into that? It doesn't matter. The fact is the Japanese prime minister, if he was did not have a great relationship with the president, would, would not have. And that's the point. What we have here is a president who can walk and chew gum. We don't have to sit there and have one topic that, we're, that he's trying to deal with over a course of two, three weeks, a month. He's able to do four, five, six big things at once. Um, he trusts his people to, to set, set the stage, and then he goes in and tries to close the deal. Does it always work? No, but it's a you can't separate the North Korea problem from the Chinese problem. What people don't realize or may not remember is that previous administrations always relied on the Chinese to deal with the North Koreans. That yes. was part of the deal, is we'll rely on the Chinese to deal with the North Koreans. And they forgot the simple fact that the Chinese were using the North Koreans as kind of a probed, probing nation, see how far they could get away with, while the Chinese were building up a massive military infrastructure at the same time. So the Chinese has never been in their interest to deal with the North Koreans. It's been in their interest to have the North Koreans be the initial provoc provocateurs and then uh, find out how people will react to those provocations. What they discovered is the provocations by the North Koreans with this, with this president met a stone wall. He said, you continue this and I'm going to turn you to glass. And the North Koreans said, well, we don't want to be turned to glass said, well, then you better start, better figure it out. And that's where these negotiations came from. And what's important here is the United States is, is dealing with this negotiation directly, cutting the Chinese out of the process. At the same time, dealing with the Chinese on economic issues that are that where there's a lot of imbalance based upon the trade rules that are in place and attempting to recenter the entire uh, relationships throughout Asia um, in a way that um, creates a more fair, balanced uh, relationship and also doesn't put the whole world at, at threat, being threatened by an increased, increasingly volatile Chinese military, as well as this North Korean provocateur. That's a lot for the president and his administration to bite off. And as we were just discussing possible weaknesses that President Trump has going into this negotiation, we have in the backdrop of this, the Mueller investigation. There's a lot of news out that this is going to close soon and uh, perhaps there will be no there there. How do you suspect that the Democrats will react to the final conclusions that the Mueller investigation draws, which we may not see, maybe it'll get leaked, but certainly not all of it is going to be for public consumption. The Associated Press had a story out this weekend um, which laid out the, the premise that Mueller's investigation report is effectively um, sitting out there for all to see based upon the various indictments and prosecutions that he has done. So we have a, and that that's effectively going to be his report. Um, and quite honestly, that's what his report ought to be, because any report that he produces, which names names and says these people might have done this and might have done that, is really outside the scope of what a prosecutor should do. A prosecutor is not, if they can't bring charges, 
it is unethical for them to then make speculation about people and what they could or could not have might or might not have done if they believe if they have ability to bring charges against those people for doing it they should bring the charges yes if they can't bring charges they should shut up because people who get accused in these kind of reports would end up with no venue to defend themselves right and so they are permanently found guilty in the public eye with no venue to prove to defend themselves not even just prove themselves you know not guilty but to even defend themselves at all so it's unethical and i think one of the critical pieces here is that with the new attorney general having a very close personal relationship with bob Mueller, i think bob Mueller's independence on this has somewhat been diminished not because of any pressure by Barr, by new attorney general Barr, but because he's going to submit this report to attorney general Barr, who's now his boss and he doesn't want his boss who's his friend to sit there and say what are you doing you're violating all the ethics that we all that we all accepted and be rebuked by his own by his own friend by the way um the attorney general and uh, Mueller's wives go to bible study together so they have a very close personal relationship i think that's really interesting because doesn't that go to the larger issue of the swamp uh this podcast is called right in dc and we talk frequently about the connections between the power players in washington dc and it is hard to live in a community and not be affiliated with the people you live among, even if they're of different political parties. And and I think that's one thing. But when you're talking about actual uh, decisions that are being made, how much do you think these personal relationships in D.C. harm the larger project of limited government versus help the larger project of limited government? Um, there's nothing in D.C. that helps limited government. Um, it is a, uh, hopefully I help limited government, but I, I make a point of living out way outside DC. <laughs> um, so apart from you living in DC, I, I can't think of anything else. Um, here's the, here's the big challenge. And we all went through the shutdown together and I'll, I'll just make that very clear. Every single one of us, I live 35 miles outside of DC and in, in a coastal community on the on Western shore of the Chesapeake Bay. And. I, I go to church there. I have that's where my life is. And I knew dozens of people impacted by the by the shutdown. You know, they were friends. They were people I went to church. I go to church with my church ran a, a fundraising thing to help feed, provide food for people who were affected negatively by the government shutdown. So. If you were sitting there and you are a member of Congress or you are a member of a staff member of a member of Congress and you're trying to you're pushing for the shutdown to try to get certain things done. What you face is you face a, the kind of the grassroots pressure of everybody who lives in your block are sitting there. They know that you're the one who's, who's doing this, your bosses. And they're sitting there saying, hey, wait a second, you know, my son is a contractor. He's not getting paid. My my daughter is a um, works for a for the Census Bureau. She's not getting paid. And so you have these enormous pressures because you live in the swamp. And as a, as a result, it is everything, everything flows towards giving people raises because you want to be nice to your neighbors you know increasing the size of scope of government because wouldn't it be nice if the 
the contracting firm that your buddy works for got a new got a new contract. All those things flow towards bigger government and very little in the actual stream of, of consciousness here in D.C. flows towards lesser government, which is why people should be wanting Congress to spend more time back in the districts and less time in D.C., because every moment they're in the district, they're talking to you. They're talking to real people uh, with real concerns. Every moment they're in Washington, D.C., they're talking to people whose concerns, completely honestly concern, honest concerns, are built around the bigger government and the focus of government being here in D.C. I think you raise such an interesting and little discussed point that when people discuss the swamp, it's not about it can be about corruption, but your point is that it's not that particular aspect is not about corruption. It's about the natural human instinct to get along with the people that you are in close proximity with to help them. You mentioned that example of, you know, you have a buddy who works for a defense contractor or a different contractor, tech contractor, and you'd like them to get the benefit of the, the new business. So it's not it's not talking about bribery or um, anything illegal or unethical, but it's just the natural impulse to want to better your community and help those you know. And I don't think that's discussed often enough. It's actually the, I think the primary reason why um, Washington, D.C., the single most important thing you could do if you wanted to reform this system is, I, I've had two ideas and, and I'm not sure either one are going are gonna to fly with anybody, but uh, one of the ideas is every 10 years move the capital. Just mm. move the capital. It's a crazy idea. Nobody's discussed it. Just me. Okay. This isn't like something anybody's actively considering. But if we every 10 years move the move the capital, at the very least, the decision makers would get out of Washington, D.C. One, one decade, they might be in, you know, in New York. In the next decade, they might be in Omaha and, and get a different perspective um, because of the neighbors that are around them and and quite honestly, and, and this is pretty important, it's a, I think it's really important that people not be the congressman, the elected representatives, not actually be living in Washington, D.C. and commuting home and being there on occasion, instead living in their districts and spending limited time in Washington, D.C. That's the way it's supposed to work, and uh, it's not the way it does work. But, Gail, the last point on that is the committee, the staffs, are, are the power in, in Congress, the, both the congressional staff, the leadership staff, the permanent uh, com committee staffs. That's where the power in Congress lies. And those people aren't elected and you don't know who they are. And most of the time you and I don't know who they are, but they are the, they are the real power behind most of the decisions that are made. And as a result, you have to, by moving this around, you get a lot more different blood into that staffing system, drawing from different pools, and you would end up with a with a much more uh, you'd break up that cycle. So that's the first the first one. The second one is to move the agencies um, out of Washington D.C. Most of the buildings in Washington D.C., at least in the in the central part, are either lobbyists or they're or they are agencies like Department of Agriculture, Department of Justice, Department you know IRS, all that are all there really right between the White House and the Capitol. And the best thing you can, second best thing is to move all those agencies and just say, okay, Department of Agriculture, you're going to be out in, out in Omaha. 
and you're and maybe the Bureau of Land Management, Department of Interior, you're going to be out in Montana. And we basically shove those agencies out into the places where they're most likely going to have their constituents. And at that juncture, we kind of disperse the um, the power centers and we disperse the the bureaucratic centers so they're closer to the people actually trying to serve. And hopefully in that regard, you're getting better service for those people rather than the current kind of Washington, D.C. bureaucraties where everybody's from here in D.C. Nobody actually, uh, we write, all write memos to one another, and we really don't realize that the rest of the country is burning. There was a really great op-ed on that exact suggestion. And you might remember after 9-11, there was a suggestion to move the agencies out for security reasons so that we wouldn't have everything so centralized in Washington that it is makes such an easy target. But then also the idea that their lower cost of living, it would actually benefit the the government's budget in order to move some of these agencies to communities that have a much lower, I mean, DC has one of the highest costs of living of the entire country. And there's really no reason that it all has to be located here to the extent that it is. I have heard from many of my liberal uh, compadres that why don't we consider electronic voting and electronic communication for the Congress, which rose to my mind when you said the idea about moving the Capitol every 10 years, which I've never heard before. I'm going to always credit you with that idea. Uh, But certainly liberals, leftists have talked about why can't we have electronic voting? Why do they have to be in D.C.? And I think it's it's kind of the same idea that you're saying, but in the flip. I feel like the reason they suggest that is they feel like they could control that better and that somehow it would work to the Democratic Party's adva- advantage. What do you think about that idea? Um, electronic voting is a great way to have th- fraud. Let me tell you a story. Um, I used to lobby Louisiana many, many, many years ago um, when I was lobbying for the National Rifle Association. And there were about six or seven different candidates running for an open congressional seat at the time. And one of the candidates, uh, two of the candidates were members of the House of Delegates uh, down in Louisiana. And so they had an ethics bill that was up on the floor. And one of the candidates snuck over and voted the other candidate who was not in the room, voted the other candidate against the ethics bill um, and tried to get away with it. Gets caught. You know, big scandal. It's kind of funny. Guy came in second, by the way. Um, <laughs> it was a... Um, so close. So so close. But here's the thing. If in a, in a in-person vote, people are tempted to cheat. Right. Do that kind of thing. Imagine the temptation of having your uh, this electron electric system where you're you're remotely doing it. Where no, you don't know who's pulling the button. Heck, your cat can be voting. Um, it's a so you don't know who's actually voting um, because there's no accountability from that standpoint. And it's a it becomes uh, in many respects a, a, an extraordinarily insecure system. I will give you the other, I will give you the other challenge. And this kind of, there is great value 
in terms of trying to get stuff done in Washington, D.C., of people actually talking to one another, actually explaining, well, here, I, here I'm going to vote this way because of X, Y, or Z. And if you're, if you're in, the, in a kind of Facebook friend mode with people, um, you, you don't really have conversations by and large. You don't have proximity to have those conversations. And that lack of proximity to have conversations makes it so extremely difficult to get to yes on anything. And in, in our current world, um, I'm not exactly happy with the, um, with the ability of the Republicans in the past two years to get anything done. But I, I do know this. I do know if you're sitting there and you're not actually even sure if the person who you're talking to is pulling their own, is pushing their own button, it is a, it is a far more um, difficult task have a meaningful conversation one-on-one between members trying to craft the legislation that meets a number of different people's thoughts and needs. And if you're doing that over conference call, quite honestly, every one of us knows how those conference calls go. (laughs) Half the people are on mute. Half the people are are playing Sudoku or doing something else. And it's not, you know, nobody's actually paying attention and, you know, you kind of blink in and blink out. Um, you want real meetings. You want real people face to face, having to confront one another and have relationships develop and actually be try, be kind of pushed to the limits in order trying to find the the right way forward for our country. If we can't sit down together and do that, if we want to do that electronically, it's all it'll all fail. So well, I, I assume that's why they call it a whip, right? The majority whip, the minority whip. That's the uh, entire point of why you call them whips. Yeah, yeah. because they they. Well, what they physically do, they don't actually whip people. <laughs> they do, they say, but they do go in and they say, you know, I'm. Are you going to be with us or are you against us? Right. And there's a powerful incentive to be with the majority on a, on a vast majority of things because, um, quite honestly, they deliver the they deliver a lot of the resources to you. Um, so that is, but I don't think that changes much in that environment. I think ah. what is the capacity to actually work out differences on card bills. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, last year, there's a Puerto Rico, or two years ago, there's a Puerto Rico bill trying to figure out what to do about it. Puerto Rico was bankrupt. What do you do about it? And Congress worked through a very, very complicated bill to try to come up with a system for trying to organize Puerto Rico in a way where they can provide the dollars. And remember, Puerto Rico is a U.S. is a U.S. state, but it is part a U.S. territory. So we have a responsibility toward Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is, it was floundering. They had a lot of problems. We went in and we tried to help them fix it. And essentially what we did, we put in a control board that then is making the financial decisions for Puerto Rico while they get back on their feet. And then they had a hurricane, which messed it all up. Right. But it's a very complicated deal. And a lot of different people from different perspectives had to be on board. And being able to talk across party lines, across kind of uh, philosophical visions, and to come to a common, uh, a common solution, it actually worked. They actually accomplished that. And I think they came up with a pretty darn good solution that wasn't a bailout, but did, in fact, meet, start to meet the needs of people in Puerto Rico. Once again, the hurricane kind of disrupted that. But it's a but as an example of actually legislative success and how legislation should be done. 
speaking of that, uh, there was definitely help given. And we see this over and over again in national emergencies, hurricanes strike, other things strike. So there's definitely a deep sense among Americans that they want to help their neighbors. And sometimes the federal government is the way to effectuate that. Uh, We have a huge debate raging in our society right now about socialism, uh, brought to us by, I think, Bernie Sanders' success in the 2016 Democratic uh, primaries and accentuated by this new Congress representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And there are conservatives who say, we shouldn't engage this. It is pulling the conversation to the left. We are giving these people who adhere to socialism more prominence than they otherwise would have, which, by the way, reminds me of the argument about Donald Trump, that if CNN hadn't given him so much free airtime, that he would not have been as strong in the Republican primaries as he was. But hold that aside for a moment. I think there's a very strong argument going on about how to deal with the threat, the intellectual threat of socialism. And I find it really interesting that at the same time we're having this debate about socialism, our our current White House administration is engaged in trying to push this Paid Family Leave Act, which is a government mandate from Washington, D.C. that would affect businesses around the country and limit their flexibility and I think would have ill effect particularly on women trying to get jobs at different companies and for women entrepreneurs who have small businesses and a federal mandate from Washington on this paid family leave would would harm their ability to direct their resources where they wanted to, where they could help people if they wanted to and, and the financial circumstances were right, but with the mandate, they wouldn't have any flexibility. Do you think that cons- I guess two-part question. Do you think that conservatives should engage the intellectual discussion or argument about socialism? And two, is the Paid Family Leave Act in direct opposition to trying to explain to Americans why socialism is limiting of freedom and opportunity? Okay, first question. There's a lot of of questions there. Um, First of all, if we don't, provide America with a moral rationale, the moral, morally certain rationale for capitalism, for free enterprise, for free free markets, at least within our own borders. Um, if we don't provide the, uh, not just the outcomes that are, are overwhelmingly good, but the socialists depend, depend on people focusing on the bad, and people focus on the bad. That is the nat- nature of humans. So what we need to do is we have to make a case for capitalism. We have to make the moral case for capitalism that that the government taking everybody's stuff and dividing it up among how they feel it should be divided up is not moral. It is theft. We have to make that case. And, and if we fail to make that case, shame on us. Um, America agrees with us when you get below the, uh, when you get below the surface of the terms, America basically agrees with us that you should be able to keep the product of your own labor. They agreed with that. You know, where they would, where America will diverge 
is when you get into the details of, gee, is $10 million enough or a year? Is that enough? Should somebody who makes over $10 million pay 70% of their taxes on their 10 millionth and $1? That's, that's a place where you're going to have some, have some debate. But overall, we have to win the big picture debate. And the big picture debate is whether or not you want a collectivized society or you want a, an individual society. And I think we win that. Secondly, but we have to engage in it to win it. And if we're afraid to engage in it, we want to just get into the details. Um, at that point, um, you start arguing the details and you, and you effectively lose um, because you haven't set the philosophical framework. Having said that, on the Family Medical Leave Act, um, there's a lot of proposals out there, but I will tell you I'm extraordinarily uncomfortable with the, the concept of saying um, if you happen to have a, a person who is of age to have children, um, that you're going to now have a, a risk factor for your company, for your small business in particular, um, for your small business that makes it so that person can go away for eight to 12 weeks you have to pay them for those eight to 12 weeks, um, while then you don't have the capacity to, to gain work out of them. So you have to replace that work uh, by somebody else, which, which doubles your costs. And quite honestly, small businesses can't afford to do that. So what the net result will be is you hire people who more or less likely to be able to be using that system. You hire people who are or you pay money for an insurance policy against that system, which means you've got a regular out-of-pocket expense that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so you've got a, a real, um, there's, a, there's a have and have not circumstance here. Um, when Ivanka Trump talks about this, she thinks about big corporations, and a lot of big corporations already have effectively paid medical leave for their employees. Um, and that's, that's fine. And if people want that, go get a job with a big corporation. The vast majority of people are hired by small companies, small businesses, and small businesses cannot afford that expense. And the reason is the market for the product they provide is not elastic. They can't just raise the price on their product because you can't just raise the price on your product to increase the, the, to cover the cost of your increased labor costs. What you have to do in that circumstance is you have to get more productivity out of fewer people. And in getting attempting to get more productivity out of fewer people, you lose some of the things you're doing to build your company, some of the things you're doing that don't that don't fit into direct profitability get washed away. And the people who end up getting hurt on that are your lower productive, your lower uh, performing employees. You're not going to take risk on lower performing employees because they can't fill the void in the event of one of your higher performing employees leaving. Um, so it really becomes a, a, it'll become a disaster for people who are on the lower two tiers on the uh, employment ladder. If you put five tiers in the employment ladder, the lower two tiers will be a disaster for them. Um, they will end up paying the price. They're the ones who will be laid off to be replaced by higher productive employees who can fill the gaps. And quite honestly, if you're if you're thinking, um, you're going to be discriminating, even whether you mean to or not, against particularly women who are childbearing age, because if you don't, um, you're you put your business at risk, and nobody's putting their business at risk. You know, if you're looking at two equal employees and one puts your business at risk by virtue of getting pregnant, and the other one doesn't, 
you're hiring the one who doesn't every single time. And it's not sexist. It's just the basic practical decision you have to make. And it's a rule. It's just government doing something they think is good. that has enormous negative downside consequences. And I think once they start thinking about those consequences, they will be, will shove it back into the box that it belongs in. Well, doesn't that just mean that Republicans are against babies and women? I mean, that's the criticism you're going to hear now that this idea is out there. And if any principled conservatives come forward to object to it, I think you're going to hear a lot of that. And the Democrats were certainly successful with the war on women attack during the 2012 presidential election. And does this not just give the Democrats more ammunition? Yeah, it certainly does. And the fact that the administration through Ivanka Trump is pushing it and the fact that uh, a number of Republican senators, at least, are uh, voicing interest to it, it's, it's going to be pretty hard if it if they come up with a piece of legislation that uh, they get the Chamber of Commerce and others to sign off on, uh, it'll be pretty hard to, to create rationality in the debate. Um, you know, fact is, politics plays a role. And um, and this is a, uh, we discovered this on the jailbreak bill, uh, which was really bad policy in, in many ways. Um, but they, you know, fact is when you had the president and the Democrats in alignment, um, it became very, very difficult for the Republicans, for conservative Republicans to, to win those arguments. Some of the proposed fixes for this potential legislation is only applying it to larger companies and to making it available for fathers and mothers. Do you think that that mitigates the risk that women will be discriminated against when they're young women applying for jobs? That if if the legislation also permits young or not young, but fathers of any age to take this uh, benefit too, that that would take away the the discriminatory effects against women. I, I've seen it as broad as being uh, covering uh, health care concerns and covering the need to uh, care for a child, the need to uh, to care for a, a parent um, at, at a long-term sustained level. So I've seen it expanded as, in a lot of different ways, and that's why it's difficult to talk about it. Each one of these, every time it's expanded, the costs of it go up um, as more and more people are, are covered under it. And effectively, what they're what they're attempting to do is they're trying to get make certain you have to hire five people to do the work. Um, that is essentially what this what this is designed to do. Um, that trick rarely works, but yeah, the more there is a if they allowed for as you as you stated, if they allowed for um, men to be part of the parental leave that would be uh that would certainly mitigate against the woman argument um however it would still have the net effect of having a millennial a millennial anti-millennial bias um you know it's a it's a whole lot easier to hire somebody who's 40 um than it is and who has a work ethic than it is to hire somebody who's 20 who doesn't well, isn't this another example of an unfunded mandate from Washington? We hear about a lot of Washington efforts that create unfunded mandates for states. But can you imagine if we'd had a debate or if we have a debate in the halls of Congress talking about whether or not 
the government should pay for this kind of, of leave instead of putting it on the employers. Well, that, that would be, I, I think, if the government was paying for this kind of leave, that would be probably, uh, it wouldn't be all that, I guess we'd have the same fight, but putting it on the uh Putting it on the employers is always, they're always more than willing to make it. So it's somebody they shuffle costs off to other people. And that's what they're doing here. Um, it's unfortunately they view, many people view the current uh, uh, full employment, almost full employment uh, situation as being an opportunity to create these mandates. Yes. Uh, and it's the irony to that, Gail, is that um, if there's a demand for this kind of family medical leave, what you'll see is the companies of their own is are trying to attract good employees, attract labor in a tight labor market, will be offering more and more benefits on their own as a result of that. And they, and they may make a choice between are we going to offer a, an IRA, a, a, a retirement where we give 3% to our, you know, as a match to a 401k, or, or are we going to offer family medical leave, knowing we have to put that 3% aside for the future, for future people taking advantage of that. And by taking advantage, I mean just using it, not taking right. advantage of it in a, in a means of being unfair. Um, and so the business then will make a decision about what benefits make the most sense. Do we offer a, a less, a more, a, a less beneficial health plan? Do we throw people off onto the Obamacare plan? While we then fund this this FMLA kind of program, so it's a so businesses will make decisions based on their own capacity to have costs, and they'll take the Rob Peter to pay Paul in terms of this kind of system. And if they do that, when they do that, we'll find that other things that businesses used to offer are become less and less prevalent. Like, um, for instance. Um, providing matching funds for a 401k, which of, which some small businesses do provide. Um, and so it's a that will go by the wayside. And instead, you'll have this other benefit that will take its place because that money will have to go be, be pulled out and be used for something else. So that's your, you know, that's the way it works. It's a, you know, unfortunately, in the, in, in at least in my world, running my little association, you know, I have I don't have a fixed amount of money, but I do have a, a pretty good idea of how much money um, I can expect to have come in. And I know what my costs can be to, to be able to meet the needs. And if I don't make the costs, I don't get paid. So I, I take it pretty seriously when I have when I expand my costs overall. And that's what individual businesses will do. And they will then shift. You'll do cost shifting and that cost shifting will just change what benefits employees get. And quite honestly. Um, a lot of the employees who currently are benefiting under the current system won't be very happy by the change shifts that occur naturally with a with an imposed system from Washington, D.C. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. We had a broad discussion from North Korea to the Mueller investigation to the attorney general and to the idea of socialism and how conservatives can engage that in the public sphere. If people want to read more about your organization and efforts that you are undertaking, where can they find you? Sure. You can find us on uh, just web, getliberty.org, getliberty.org. Or you can go to lim at limit GOVT on Twitter. 
or you, you just look at Americans for Limited Government on Facebook, and we've got about 130,000 followers. So feel free. We, we have a, a daily uh, send out we do. It's free, and you get the latest thoughts on different issues. And a lot of times at the, at the cutting edge, beginning stage of those issues before they become really big deals in the, in the national media. So getliberty.org is where you sign up and hope to uh, have some of your listeners join us. Rick is definitely a DC insider without being of DC. So we are so thankful that you joined us today, Rick. Thank you, Gail. This is Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can subscribe to this podcast right in DC on iTunes and you can leave a review. Most importantly, you can support this podcast on Patreon. We have great new t-shirts as gifts for patrons, courtesy of Hard Hits Custom Apparel. We would also like to thank Trio Caliente, a local DC group for the music on our podcasts. This is Right in DC. You're Right in DC with Gail Trotter.